hppodcraft.com. When Patty came back to work in the lobby of the Parnassus Hotel, it was clear she was liked from the way the other girls teased her and unobtrusively took it easy on her for the first few weeks while she got to feel steadier. She was deeply relieved to be back. Before she had to go up to state hospital, she had been doing four nights a week at a massage parlor called The Encounter, of which her pimp was part owner. He insisted the parlor beat was like a vacation to her because it was strictly a hand job operation. Physical demands on her were lighter than regular hotel whoring. Patty would certainly have agreed that the work was lighter it hadn't been for the robberies and killings. The last of these had been the cause of her breakdown. And though she never admitted it to Pete, her pimp, he had no doubt sensed the truth, for he had let her go back to the Parnassus and told her she could pay him half-rate for the next few weeks till she was feeling steady again. Now, we don't get a lot of pimps or prostitutes on the show, but when we do, we know it's because of our guest, Pat Oswald. <laughs> Hi, guys. Glad to bring the pimps and prostitutes by. Welcome back to our little hand job operation, hppodcraft.com. Oh, for God's sake. Strange studies of strange stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. <laughs> We're, of course, on Patreon, and this is the free show of the month. We've got the right reverend of the Church of Shea with us again, and we're finally covering the Michael Shea classic, Fat Face. So welcome, Patton. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back. Always good to talk about Michael Shea. Always. <laughs> do you guys know that there's a UK-based clothing store chain called Fat Face? Why do I feel like that's Cockney slang for like a really nice ass? Like a fa- <laughs> it's like a weird rhyming slang, like you can somehow yeah. reverse engineer it. But we're happy to be reunited here uh, to talk more about Michael Shea's Copping Squid. This is the seventh story we've covered from this collection. More importantly, a brand new Michael Shea novel was released by Hippocampus Press on August 20th, H.P. Lovecraft's birthday. The book is Mr. Canny Harm. And uh, Patton, you managed to snag this one early, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I was very, very lucky. Um, I'm friends with Linda Shea, and she sent me an early galley copy. And uh, boy, oh boy, it's a novel from uh, Michael's early days late 70s i believe uh and it's it's weirdly semi-autobiographical especially in terms of who the main character is in one of the other stories we covered there was the guy that was working in the cage at the hotel and this character it's a different name a different character but it's the same job and i know that michael had that job for a while in san francisco yeah the details about the way the cage is set up how he would bring his typewriter up and write image like it felt like these are all very specific details from his time doing that it feels very Michael Shea to, to do that. And I think he also incorporated a lot of his menial labor jobs into his writing as well. You know, being a, being a, a lumberjack, being a you know construction worker, all that stuff is also very much part of his stories, part of his horror stories. Yeah, it's got, it's got the same feel as a lot of the stories that we've covered of his so far. This was interesting because I think he did a sequel for, of The Color Out of Space previously yes. in one of his books. Co- Co- Color Out of Time. That's right. Amazing. Now this one is an adaptation or a continuation of Lovecraft's early story, The Hound. What's the deal with this crazy skeletal vampire creature at the end? This story manages to extend that a little bit. It brings that character to uh, San Francisco, the Mission District, in the aftermath of the hippie movement. There actually is a forward in the book by Linda Shea that tells uh, all about their time they spent there. One of the things she says in that opening is that Michael Shea had moved out there from his native Los Angeles. And the story that we're going to cover today, Fat Face, takes place in Hollywood. It has very much the same feel as the novel. So if you like what we talk about today, you're going to very much like this novel. Yeah, it was very nostalgic for me to read this because I lived in San Francisco the very last time that area of the mission 
was seedy and dangerous, but also kind of interesting. Uh, I moved away in 95. That's when the tech boom happened. And that entire area has been completely gentrified. It is not the area that he writes about in this story, in this novel, and it's not the area in the story, and it's not the area that I remember um, encountering when I was here in the early 90s. Similarly, in the story that we're going to cover on the episode today, Fat Face, that Hollywood that he describes is not really as much around as it used to be. Perhaps it's yeah. trending back in that direction, but... Yeah, a lot of the areas... It, it's weird how that... Um, the Hollywood he describes is much more... I don't, I'm not saying it's it's not based in reality, but it's weird how in Fat Face, he describes it in more general terms of they're, up, they're going up sunset, they're going into the hills... Whereas in Mr. Cunningham, it is very specific, almost like to the street corner where they are. Yes. I think anyone writing in Hollywood, you know how ephemeral the city is once you've lived here for a little bit. There's no point in writing anything too specific because it'll be completely dated within a couple of years of you writing it. Well, there, yeah. All my fiction based around the Galaxy Theater tossed out. <laughs> oh, my God. I have a whole bit that, that takes place at the Galaxy Theater on one of my specials, and it's completely gone. Yeah. Oh, the Galaxy Theater. I used to, I had a job in the Stephen J. Cannell building there on Hollywood and La Brea, and I had to park under the Galaxy. So I actually took some oh, afternoon no naps shit. down in that scummy Oh my God. That place, <laughs> that was the last of like, that was the last holdout of the skeezy Hollywood Boulevard theaters. Yeah. Um, and then they're, now they're all just gone. It's such a bummer. But what's not a bummer is this great <laughs> new book, Mr. Canny Harm, uh, it's out now from Hippocampus Press. They specialize in the works of H.P. Lovecraft in his literary circle, so you might want to pick up a few more things while you're there. Mm -hmm. And we'll link out to it, of course, in the show notes. The times we're living in are very dark, and Mr. Canny Harm shows us that pimps and whores and junkies can band together to fight cosmic <laughs> evil, and it will... It will really, you know, give you hope for mankind when you're done reading it. That's true. You know, it actually, that's absolutely, <laughs> it's funny because this is, uh, you know, sometimes when you read this sort of fiction from the gutter, like a Bukowski or something along those lines, you do end yeah. up a little depressed because you've been experiencing that grit. Whereas these people are so human. These characters are treated so in a non-condescending way in both the novel and the story that we're talking about today. Yeah. That. Uh, you know, you're left with a good, like, these people are making it. They're getting it done. And, and so you get a little perspective on your own life, but you are left with a little bit of a feeling of the, the triumph of the human spirit over the monsters in the abyss. Yeah, it is weird how he, he has a very uh, sunny view of, of, the, of low lives which I love. Well, it's a nice perspective. Yeah. You don't get it very often. Now, we made a little joke in the past no. about this series that we're doing with you being called He Said, She Said, but uh, <laughs> you are actually doing a podcast right now that's a little more He Said, She Said, and our listeners should probably tune into it, yeah? Well, yeah, um, I'm doing a podcast with my wife, uh, Meredith Salinger, called Did You Get My Text? And basically, it is us catching up at the end of the week. Even though we live together, even though we're never very far apart, half the day is spent texting each other. So we are deciphering texts, explaining and arguing about maybe a news item that we've sent each other or a picture that we took out and about or in the house or just like, it, it's just a couple kind of going over texts, some of which can come out kind of cryptically, just sort of, a, it's like a, a review of a week in the life through text. And it's really, really fun. So yeah, that's, uh, did you get my text, my new podcast? And do you mind if I plug a couple other podcasts I'm doing? No. Oh man, go for it. Plug away. Sure. Um, well, I mean, you know, as you know, I'm a huge Michael Shea fan. I think that, you know, this is an expandable franchise. So um, I also invite you to listen to my podcast um, about uh, reco addiction recovery through weird fiction uh, called One Shea at a Time. And uh, it's a wonderful, 
way to get together. We, we you know, think in terms of uh, how would Cthulhu shake off the shackles of alcoholism? Absolutely. You know, what would that be? Is, is yeah. alcoholism your Hastor, and how can you yeah. banish him yeah. to the nether yeah. realm? Surrender to a higher, incomprehensible power. Thank you, yes. I also have a <laughs> wonderful sewing and crafting podcast uh, with a weird fiction theme, Needle in a Shaystack. And we're, uh, <laughs> that's been very, very popular. We're uh, there's a lot of non-Euclidean um, knitting and crocheting. We, we learned how to knit scarves that don't exactly wow. follow the 3D laws of mathematics and physics. It's a wonderful, wonderful wow. podcast that we're doing. And then, of course, uh, there's my um, community action podcast for kids called Say It Forward. And that is where we <laughs> try to show people how to give back to the community through the horrors and hopelessness of weird fiction. It's, it's a go. wonderful... I hope wow. everyone tunes into those. So thank you. Yeah, it's a great cause. Yeah. It's a great cause. I mean, if you like yeah. this, keep keep going with the Shea brand. There's so many podcasts that you Oh, no, from. it's endless. It really is endless. So. <laughs> well, lastly, I just want to mention I've been enjoying the hell out of MODOK mental organism oh, designed only for you. killing. It's, it's a joy. Uh, and I've always been a fan of MODOK because he's ridiculous. And uh, mm-hmm. you really hit the nail on the head. There's some great stuff in there. So we had so much fun doing that. And it was so bizarre doing it and, and having Marvel let us play in the toy box the way that they did. Like we asked yeah. for characters thinking they're not going to let us use this character. And they absolutely did. Oh, but then on so the other awesome. hand, there were other characters. One of which this is still throws me. We wanted to use Stilt Man in a bar scene. Stilt Man is like the lowest of the low of the Marvel villains. He's, and they were yes. like, no, you can't use him. And we're like, what? You can't use him. Like, we're going, oh, what, did, I'm sorry, did, did Joaquin oh. Phoenix, Phoenix agree to play him in a movie or something? Like, why can we not use Stilt Man? So <laughs> that was, that was worst, very interesting. He just Stilt has man. legs that extend. That's it. That's it. That's, that's his whole all, power. It is. Literally, his his name is his power. I would really like to see Speedball in something. That's what I've been holding out for. I was a huge Speedball fan in the late 80s. One of the only ones, which is why, you know, didn't last. Yeah. I always really liked it. Yeah, yeah. penance after Civil War, but... Uh, yeah. I remember that. By the way, one of the dumbest characters... That, that, was, the, that was the last gasp of the whole dark and gritty thing. I know. So they so made funny. him this weird S&M got emo <laughs> yeah. weirdo where he wears armor with spikes on the inside that harm inside. him yes yes it was, oh my god it was oh. the weirdest thing i've ever seen yeah you know i ripped on it really hard when it came out too but i think part of that was because i knew that when i was in eighth grade i would have been like yeah <laughs> exactly oh yeah a little moody eighth grade is like that's right man that's how i feel that's absolutely right <laughs> oh yeah but he was guilty over what happened what transpired over the, yeah. the explosion when Nitro all killed all the yeah. school kids. Yeah. So he had to pay penance. You know, that's what it was all. It was deep, man. Hey, but you know what? Modoc could have easily been called Fat Face. Oh, so absolutely. The fattest oh face. Oh my God, that's right. Our story begins with a woman in Los Angeles, Patty, who is a sex worker. This is an early 80s uh, Hollywood. Now, I got the impression that oh. Shay might be the kind of guy who knew prostitutes. Well, also, if he was working in the hotels he said he was working in, I'm sure a lot of them catered yeah. to and made money off of that kind of, let's say, traffic. Patty had just gotten back from State Hospital, which is a mental health facility for people that can't uh, afford to take care of themselves. Before going to this hospital, she was doing four nights a week at a massage parlor. Yeah, the encounter. I can literally see the font that that's written in. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh. 
She realized while she was working at the massage parlor that the clients were getting robbed and murdered there. Right. She recalls this guy that showed up. He was drunk and he had victim written all over him. As she stood there, pounding firmly on him through the towel, trying to concentrate on her rhythm, she beheld an obese black cockroach running boldly across the carpet. And the floor got sticky underneath me as I read that sentence. It was so disgusting. <laughs> yeah, that was... Oh, boy, that creeped me up for some reason. Because, it, again, it's so like shade to not have the cockroach itself do anything physically gross. It's the it's the reality of the cockroach being in the room while she's basically tugging a guy off. Yeah. Um, it's just so grim. But she says, too, that yeah. somehow this cockroach communicated to her that this guy was going to die. There was something like it kind of stopped yeah. and gave her this look. <laughs> it was a bad like, omen. Yes. And now I wondered, is this... Because that's a little like life, too, where when you find something out, you'll look back and then attach a significance to a moment, maybe. And it feels like it was a premonition. Or is she connected and sensitive in some way where this actually happened in a uh, maybe there was a supernatural thing here? What do you think it was? Well, I don't know, because very, very shortly thereafter, um, Shay, and I don't want to jump ahead, but Shay describes her. And this was this really struck me about how kind of indecisive and passive she is. And mm -hmm. there's this line about she was very good at adjusting to things that were not nice at all if somebody strong insisted on them. So, mm -hmm. I, like, in, in a way, like a lot of, um, uh, of the protagonists in, like, M.R. James stories, one of, the, one of the ways you can be protected from the uncanny or the cosmic is by being kind of dumb. And, and, and maybe right. she's not that aware of things, mm -hmm. and that is partially what helps her in a weird way. Mm. Oh, yeah, you know? very interesting, yeah. you know. And, sure. and that line, I think that had I read that when I was younger, I would have thought, oh, poor thing, you know, she's indecisive. Maybe that's gotten her into this situation. But I read that now at middle age much differently because it's something that you realize over time that people just want decisions made for them, whether they're good or bad. Oh. And so somebody who's an idiot can just stand up and if they make a decision, people will go, okay. It's the Devo line of freedom of, freedom of choice is what you've got and freedom from choice is what you want. There's also <laughs> a subconscious choosing of that because it is a more comfortable and safer way to live if the you know push came to shove she could make a decision but in her everyday life like you said it's so much easier when someone's just telling you what to do and for some people that's weirdly comforting it's like those people yeah. that you do in college that they only studied for the test but as, as far as outside making outside connections with the material or doing outside work they're, they're just like tell me what i need to repeat on the test and i will do it Mm -hmm. and, and like they studied hard, but they just studied and remembered what they were told to, yeah. to remember. And that's it. And you, and you meet them 20 years later and, and they, they graduated with a 4.0, but they've never read a book. They've never like, they're just not curious about anything. Which translates into a, a habit of received knowledge rather than cooperative, you know, a hot medium where you're participating in the knowledge that you get. It gets handed exactly. down. Exactly. Which is why you start yep. seeing people, they're susceptible to gurus and, and that kind of thing because they're oh, in the boy. learning habit of having it handed to them. And not searching it out themselves. Well, they're also in the self-comforting habit. Ultimately, they're into where I need comfort. And this gives me comfort to just be told. Yeah. None of this is on me. Now, when Pettit reads about her John's death in the paper three days later, she loses it. And her pimp has let her return to work at this hotel, the Parnassus. I see that there's a Parnassus hotel in Cancun, but not one in L.A. Yeah, I don't think that there was ever a Parnassus. Because if there, that is such a great name for a hotel. We would have remembered, I would have remembered or heard about 
the Parnassus Hotel. What a great name. It's a mountain in Greece that was supposedly in mythology where the muses lived. They talk about how in the window, it's almost like a red light district Amsterdam thing where you can see all the girls in the hotel window. So I think the idea is that they look like muses. Maybe That's what I would guess at. This is, the, oh, this yeah. is where this thing came from. Oh, I like that. But definitely these hotels are still around, maybe more so downtown than Hollywood now, but it says the big dowdy Parnassus uptown in the 40s, now in the porno heartland of Hollywood. It's that porno heartland that isn't really there anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's all gone. I yeah. mean, there's like now there's like a weirdly enough, Hollywood Boulevard from Highland on West is very Disneyfied. And then um, further down, it's these actually kind of wonderful, vibrant ethnic neighborhoods, Thai Town and Little Armenia. There's a yeah. tiny still strip, I think, just east of maybe Gower, where there is still some sketchiness and that feels like it's about to be swept away as well. Yeah, uh, not probably won't leave this in the show, but when got busted for jerking it in one of those places, I was like, they still exist? I, I was like so surprised. <laughs> I thought he got busted at that place, the Tomcat on Santa Monica. There's, there is one porno theater, and it, it kind of bums me out because they used to have a marquee and they would put their yeah. porno titles up there. So you'd drive by and say, Marines don't kiss and Hispanic mechanics, and now like that's all gone. Six gays, seven nights. I saw that billboard there, and I was a fun. <laughs> the other girls called Patty hometown because she was from a small town in Central California, and also would make small talk and be friendly with the guys at the drugstore and at the coffee shop, saying things like, "They sure got you working hard, don't they?" You know, she's just kind of a real friendly, nice person. And she's described as a vampire brunette in her 20s. You know, these countertops, these adolescent guys who work at these places just sort of play along with her. But they don't really they don't really participate in this Hollywood neighborhood fantasy that she has. No, not at all. And in a weird way, you could almost say, is this woman lethally friendly, like to her to her disadvantage? Mm. Right. Sometimes that kind of sunny innocence, because people that are so used to seeing ugliness all day, if you're something kind of sunny and upbeat, they will protect that. They don't want that to go away. That was one of the reasons that the Kelly girls were the ones who helped to settle the West because there were these nice young girls that they sent out West to work as waitresses in these restaurants to get, and, and the townspeople, because they were so used to everything being ugly and gross, are like, hey, there's just really nice, and then they would get really, if anyone tried to mess with them, they would just shut that down immediately. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, the Kelly girls. I've never read about that before. I'm going to check that out. It's the most un-HP Lovecraft thing I could have brought up, but <laughs> Thank uh, you. it's still, yeah, but it's, but it's a fascinating story. Anyway, back to the story. Now, there's this guy across the street that she's interested in, and the girls call him Fatface. He works in a tall building across from the hotel. There's a window, and he is on the fourth floor office. The girls would laugh for hours about what seemed to be this guy's two businesses, the only businesses in the building, a hydrotherapy clinic and a pet refuge. For anyone outside of the mythos, that's like, oh, that's a kooky Hollywood neighborhood. But in our minds, we're immediately like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. Grist for the mill, sacrifices, some kind of the intimate. Like we're, we, you already start making connections. It's really fun when you when you see those two things. What made the comedy irresistible was that sometimes the clients, the two services, arrived together. The hydrotherapy patients were a waddling pachydermis lot skimping on bulky orthopedic boots, their wobbly bulks rippling in roomy jumpsuits or bib overalls. And, as if these hulks required an added touch, they sometimes came with cats and dogs in tow. These beasts, whales and struggles against their leashes or carrying cages made it plain that they were strays 
not pets. The misshapen captors' fleshy, stolid faces, as if oblivious to the thrashings of the beasts, added that last note of slapstick to the spectacle. We know what these blobby-shaped humans are under their tracksuits and bib overalls. We already know. I think we covered a story where they mentioned, the, I mean, these guys were the, the assistants at the, the battery. And that story, the battery that we covered, yep. they came in at the end and they had on their overalls and they were these big uh, guys. So this oh yeah, referencing that story, if we remember that earlier, that, that we can deduce that these guys might be Shoggoths. If Shoggoths wanted to disguise themselves among the population, they wouldn't need to do that many because no one really pays attention to things, especially in Hollywood. They're just like, yeah. oh, look at these goofy fat people. Ha ha ha. That kind of, um, you know more than the... Uh, than the reader, which is which I love. Now, it seems a lot of his patients actually worked for him because these bulky people would be seen driving vans with a pet rescue logo on them. The girls <laughs> and the pimps would make jokes about Fat Face and his clients having orgies that involved oiled up goiter rubbing and water orgies. But, <laughs> but, I know, I remember the, oh God, that phrase, goiter rubbing, oh God. <laughs> but Patty, she didn't like to make fun of the guy. She liked him. Patty has this fantasy that, you know, maybe he's got a long dead wife, he's lonely, and she could go up there and ravish him for free. He'd be so grateful. It's sort of a little yeah. kindness that she's uh, that she fantasizes about. Now, Patty's friends with another sex worker, Sherry, who seems to be kind of the fun, drunk party girl. They're out drinking and, and Patty does a little passive aggressive. You know what you should do, Sherry? You should go up and have sex with Fat Face, right? And Sherry says he's so fat it'd be like lubing a hill, which leads to Patty's best line. So what are you saying? You only trick superstars? So what if he's fat? <laughs> Wow. To what Patton was saying earlier, she says, I'm part of these people's community, and yet we never do anything to show it. There's no getting together. We're just faces. I mean, like fat face. And and I think that if there is something going on in the story that's more than a monster story, this is it. Yeah. And also, there are enough freaky looking people in these neighborhoods. I mean, again, it's, it's such a um, commentary on the, the poor and the way we treat the, um, you know, people who don't have access to regular health care or just, you know, preventative health care that... When they, when they slide down there, they're like, well, people just kind of drive by and go, well, that's what people do to themselves. What, you know, mm. that, that, that sense of insulation lets the Shogoths wander our world pretty much freely. By late afternoon, they're really drunk and decide that they're going to go visit Fat Face's building. And it's eerily quiet. It says it might as well be Mars or Jupiter. And I, I think that's because they've entered the monster's lair. Oh, yeah. Again, in Hollywood, um, a lot of those buildings house voiceover studios, recording studios, and... So part of the appeal to get those clients is to make the, the building soundproof. Right. Because that's part of the, the world, that the, the industry of illusion, that would actually, uh -huh. again, he really mapped out why Hollywood would be a great place for Shogoths to uh, live. <laughs> now they get up to uh, his office, but Patty chickens out. So Sherry, she writes a note on a piece of paper, shoves it under the door, and they run off giggling. Patty wants to know what Sherry wrote, but she won't tell her. And she says that um, Sher Sherry has played some pranks on her in the past, in regards to his notes and stuff, which sound like playful fun, but of course, being playful in the Lovecraft universe is never a good idea. No, sir. Now, there's a guy they know from the Hollywood neighborhood, Arnold, who was described earlier as the smudged moronic vendor at the corner newsstand. As she and Sherry are getting away from the high rise, he kind of lurches away from the newsstand. He hands Patty a note. Arnold says that some random guy gave him $20 to give her the note. So they hit the bar, give the note a read. We're not going to do the whole thing, but here's an excerpt from it. This is one creepy love note. Ready? <laughs> Dear girls. How does a Shogoth lord go wooing 
you do not even guess enough to ask, then let it be asked and answered for you. As it is written, the Shogoth Lord stumbleth unto his beloved. Lo, he cometh heavily unto her upon alien feet from the sunless sea, from under the mountains of ice, cometh the mighty Shogoth Lord unto her. And then he goes on to say that Shogoth Lords are limber now, supremus of polymorphs. Then there's a little poem. He always oh, adds a little poem. You ready? <laughs> yeah. This should be nice. Come on, all poems are nice, right? <laughs> this won't be creepy at all. No. For even star spawn may grow weak, while what has been its slave gains strength. Even star spawns will may break, while slaves feed on their lords at length. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let's see uh, Richard Mark set that to music. <laughs> uh, we, we know as Lovecraft nerds that Shoggoths are formless protoplasmic creatures that were slaves to elder things from before mankind. Maybe humans have evolved from them. But this little love letter suggests that Shoggoths have turned the tables on their earlier masters and they're also romantic. Well, in his mind, that's like, that is a thing that would make a woman go, hey, like, nice. <laughs> Alien feet. Yeah, it says they crave their lovers to be fat with panic and full of the psychic juices of despair. The Shoggoth Lord pipes to her bold, seductive lyrics like, My scalding flesh will be your gown and agony your bridal song. The letter freaks the girls out, as it should, and they decide they're going to have a sleepover to stay safe the next day over breakfast. Unfortunately, Sherry's pimp shows up and carts her off, so Patty's left alone. Patty goes back to the Parnassus, gets some coke, a donut, and then roams around most of the day going to the movies. She decides that, you know, she's a little upset about this, so she's going to go ahead and uh, hang out with her friend, Sherry, even though she, she she did a multiple trick and got beat up by her pimp and isn't feeling very well, but she comes to crash in on her anyway. Now, when she gets there, she hear, hears noises and thinks that Sherry might have a trick with her. Peeking in the window, Sherry was on her back in the bed, and somebody was on top of her, so that all Patty could see of her was her arms and her face which stared round-eyed at the ceiling as she was rocked again and again on the bed. Patty viewed that surging, grappling labor for two instants no more and retreated, almost staggering, in a primitive reflex of shame more deep-lying in her than any of the sophistications of her adult professional life. Now, Patty waits outside for some time at a, at a nearby bar, and then she comes back and finds the trick is gone and something horrible has happened. There is a terrible carrion smell, a smell of death, and when she gets the courage to look in the bedroom, it's pretty gruesome. Sherry was in the room. She lay on the floor, mostly under the bed, only her head and shoulders protruding, her face to the ceiling. There was no misreading its now frozen look. It was a face wherein the recognition of absolute pain and fear had dawned even as death arrived. Dead she surely was. Living muscles did not achieve that utter fixity. Tears jumped up in Patty's eyes. She staggered into the living room, fell on the couch, and wept. Oh, Jesus, God, she said again, softly, now. Cherry would not at least lie half-thrust from sight like a broken toy. Her much-used body would have a shred of dignity that her life had never granted it. She bent and hooked her hands under those dear, bare shoulders. She pulled and, with her pull's excess force, fell backward to the floor, for that which she fell hugging to her breast needed no such force to move its lightness. It was not Sherry, but a dreadful upper fragment of her that Patty hugged. Sherry's head and shoulders, one of her arms, gone were her fat, funny feet they used to laugh at, for she ended now in a charred stump of ribcage. As a little girl might clutch some unspeakable doll, Patty lay embracing tightly that which made her scream and scream again. Yikes. Yeah. 
and that puts yeah. Patty back in county for a week, uh, <laughs> up on pills and television to yeah. try and get over that. Yeah. God. While she's there, she calls the detectives in uh, that are working on the case every day, but they have nothing mm-hmm. new about Sherry's murderer. What she found was all there was to be found. Apparently, the rest of the body was dissolved in some kind of acid, they're saying to her. After Patty gets out of county, she makes her way back to the Parnassus, and she gets a room in the hotel and has crazy dreams where she is the heart and mind of the city with all these worms or jellyfish creeping through her. She, she wakes up late on the Sunday morning and there's this fly battering her window trying to get out. So she grabs her blouse and tries to kill it. She's just standing there in her bra when she sees Fat Face. She's now in a hotel room that she grabbed up there. It's directly across from his fourth floor office. Mm-hmm. And they kind of flirt for a bit and she gets the impression that he wants her to come over and she's really excited about this. As she's headed over, the the, the newsstand guy grabs her. He says, please, Patty. And it's a real uh, Dwight Fry Renfield Dracula moment where he goes, mm-hmm. he, he sees Fat Face looking down at him and he goes, no, I said nothing. I only hinted. You know, he's scared of his master. And I yeah. said nothing, master. Rats. So I don't know if he's a Shargoth or not. The way they described him, it seemed like he was. Or again, like Renfield, he's a human that they promised to make a Shargoth or... or to commune with them somehow. And that's yeah. what he's doing his duty right now. He's like a he's like a prospect for a motorcycle gang. She runs across the street and up into the building to Fat Face's office. She seizes the knob and knocks simultaneously while pushing her way in. He's there right. with a big belly and huge legs. He's wearing leg braces and a doctor's smock. He would normally be gross to her, uh, it says, but she finds him kind and grandfatherly, which of course makes me think of sex right away. <laughs> well, come on. What woman does want to get in there with Burl Ives? <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. That's playing in the background, but also we hear agitated water sounds uh, conjoined with the noises of animals and then have a holly jolly Christmas. It's all mixing together into some weird. It's, it's beautiful. Romantic cocktail. He says to her, you make an old, old fellow very, very happy. Something in his voice sent mm. half lustful goosebumps up her spine and he gets up and he's spry despite his size. Yeah. Kind of a yeah. John Belushi type. He uh, guides her into a room with a big uh, hydrotherapy tub, and he says, look, soon we'll all dine on lovely flesh. Men and women, not paltry vermin. Boy, that kind of reminds me of Renfield, too. Real lives, <laughs> well, yeah. not rats. It looks like he's got some kind of rubber suit strapped and buckled uh, under his, his smock that he's wearing. She opens up the shutter that looks over a huge indoor pool filled with black slime that bulges and moves. And she begins to lose her grip on reality a bit. This is, you know, it's it's finally, it's starting to click with her that maybe she's made some bad choices. Fatface is taking off his buckles and he explains that they find it easier to hold their shapes when they wear these suits. They're just big monstery heads on weird Shoggoth bodies. They don't want to redo the face every time because people would notice the subtle differences since this is all anybody looks at. So basically it's almost like they're wearing like a human a human body mold in a weird way. Yeah. It clicks together to make a humanoid shape. Yeah. A little like Penance used to wear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As he unbuckles, a section opens up and purple gel comes out and into the tub. She runs for the door, but it won't open. And he says from behind her, we keep our head in this shape because if we lose it, we might not be able to get it back just right. (laughs) She looked back and saw a huge pouch like dreadful comic phalluses 
spring from the tub of slime that now boiled with movement. She screamed. Oh, yes, fluted the fat face that now bobbed on the purple simmer. Patty's arms smoked where the pouts took them. She was plucked from the floor as lightly as a struggling roach might be. Oh, yes, girl, you'll have for bridesmaids pain and dread. For vows, you'll jabber blasphemies. And he brought her to hang above the cauldron of his acid body. She saw his eyes roll jet black. He lowered her feet into himself. A last time before shock took her, Patty threw the feeble tool of her voice against the massive walls. She kicked as her feet sank into the scorching gelatin, kicked till her shoes dissolved, till her feet and ankles spread nebula of liquefying flesh within the Shalaf Lord's greedy substance. Then her kicking slowed, and she sank more deeply in. That's the end of the story. Oh, boy. There's something for the ladies there. <laughs> well, when so you reread it obviously to come do the episode, but when was the first time you were uh, you came across the story? When I first got copying Squid, I mean, I just blazed through that book, so that that must have been the um, mm-hmm. first time that I read it. You know, thought it was amazing. Yeah, certainly it's the one that people know of his. When we said we were covering Michael Shea stories, they knew Fat Face, so it's very yeah. anthologized. Well, Is that it the made it in? It made it into the Call of Cthulhu. Role, the role-playing game rule book. Uh, they have Shoggoth Lords. Uh, what? Uh, and they, oh, yeah. And they quote Shay on there. Uh, you know, when the monster description is. Yeah, they used the one of there. Uh, it was licensed by, by Chaosium or from Arkham House or something at, at some point. So it's, it's in. Wow. I, I think that's the way that a lot of people found this, uh, found Shay was through through the role-playing game like a lot of people did i mean that's how i got into lovecraft mm-hmm. was through the role-playing game when i was a kid well that's so cool well i think it also was in an issue of the fantasy of uh it magazine of fantasy and science fiction i think might have been in an issue of that as well yeah first but yeah well i loved it i mean it was just such a fun great monster monster in the city read interesting characters new perspective and great gritty muscular writing yeah and also just great in terms of there's no reasoning with these things that they don't even want to like it, it isn't even that it's taking pleasure even though it's saying that you're going to feel all this pain and torture it's like this is just this is how i feed man this isn't uh it's not my fault this is what i do why'd you come up here and of course she was expecting to to have this kind of warm, loving relationship. You know, like he's a guy that needs this affection. She's willing to provide it. And it, it's this whole, it's, it, it turns out to be a different kind of sustenance that, you know, not not an emotional kind, but of actual physical. Right. That's the trap of it. You're saying it's a happy ending. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she did provide some kind of satisfaction or relief for Fat Face. But also like, it is, is it that he is compelling her with his weird eldritch power, or is it just a character flaw in her that would, it's the same kind of flaw that would draw her to maybe date a serial killer, or like like she's so clearly drawn to these extremes in physicality and behavior that maybe she was doomed all along. Yeah. It's also interesting how he kind of found a low-life analog for these kind of lonely, misanthropic kind of shut-ins that go searching for a lot of the stuff that has to do with the Cthulhu mythos. And in Lovecraft stories, it's always someone who's kind of a little bit removed from society or not like the others around him. And so he just found it that's equivalent of who else gets ignored these days. And, and part, of their, part of their commerce is based on partially being invisible and being able to slip through the cracks. Terror. And, and, that, that, and that also kind of dooms her. It's really sad. Yeah. 
Um, well, this yeah. was fantastic, guys. Thank you so yes. much. Thank you so much for coming on yeah. once again. And I'm glad. I, I There's another little story, I think, from the Copping Squid we have left to cover. But we'll do that another time. It's so fun to have you on. And as always, we want to get people reading Michael Shea. The new yes. book is out. It's called Mr. Canny Hair. Uh, it's fantastic from Hippocampus Press. I'm so happy I got to join you again on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Thanks, guys. See you soon. HP Podcast. Yeah.